Oh man, if you have a Bible right now, I want you to open up to the book of 1 Peter. That is where we are at in our current series. So you can open up to uh, 1 Peter, that'd be fantastic. How many are still doing Smash Bible at this juncture? Look at that, bam! Nice! I'm clapping for you. You guys are doing awesome. So, um, you can do Smash Bible even as we're going through the series. What's nice about it is it, we're going so methodically, right? We've, what, first week was a word. We made it through. Uh, second week, we made it through a verse and a half. Uh, we're moving fast. Today, we're going to make it through 10 verses. We are booking, baby. Um, so, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we're going to get underway with this. Jesus, I thank you again for uh, our friend Peter, and I thank you for the wisdom that Peter gives to us and the encouragement he gives to us. And I think about especially today as we're going to be looking at a lot of promise that is given to us, and then from that promise we are encouraged to endure. And and so I pray that we will uh, have a sense of vision from you this morning, that Holy Spirit, you will give us that long game perspective in what we are doing and why we do what we do. And so, uh, man, we look to you to teach us and show us in those ways and to encourage us to keep enduring in the challenges and trials of life, uh, keeping the big perspective. So we ask that you would do that. We ask that in your good and perfect name. Amen. All right. Um, So I want to share with you how life really is, right? That's my mission today, how life really is. Let me simplify life for you. Uh, Life is a series of boxes. That's really all life is. So uh, you are born, and as soon as you're born, they put you in a box, right? It's this little plexiglass box. There's a bunch of other little plexiglass boxes and a bunch of little babies all in these boxes, and your life starts in a box, And they take you from that box and they bring you home and they put you in another box called a crib inside a box called your room. And you grow up in that box for a season until you finally graduate. You go off to college and they put you in what? Another box. It's called a dorm. And you enjoy your life in that box for a season, four years, some of you five or six or seven. Um, And then eventually you leave that box and you go into another box and it's an apartment. And you might go into an apartment with a handful of friends. Uh, If you're all females, that apartment looks like a home. If it's all males, not so much. Um, Lots of cinder block and boards and a really horrible smell. Um, But eventually you meet that special someone and the two of you get married and then you rent your own box. And you might have one car that you're sharing for a while until eventually you save up enough for your starter box. And you get your first home. And you got two cars now. And you enjoy that for a while until you have kids. And when you have kids, and you say, I need another box. I need my dream box. And so you get your dream box. And you fill the dream box with all of your kids. And now you don't just have two cars. You have three cars or four cars, depending on how many kids you have. right? And you have this great box. And you have that box for a while. Until your kids move out into their boxes, and then you downscale your box to another box. This box has wheels, and you tow one car behind that box, right? Isn't this how it works? And you enjoy that box until one day you can't drive that box anymore, and they put you in what? A box. They put you in a retirement home. You get this one great little box until one day you pass away, and they put you in a box, right? And that is the series of life. And here's what I can guarantee you in that whole span. In every single box, here's the guarantee. You and I will experience suffering in every single box, and then you die. 
Aren't you glad you're here today? All right, so, right? But that's sort of the guarantee. And, and maybe throughout the other guarantees, you'll be taxed according to every box. Um, so all of that is true to life. In fact, when we're boldly and sincerely honest about the challenges of life, what we know is that life, life is about struggle. Life is about hardship. Life is about suffering. It just is. And so we don't want to run from that. I think sometimes we we attempt to, but we always fail. We fail at our pursuit of fleeing suffering because suffering is always going to catch us at some level as human beings. And this is why, as a Christian, I love the gospel. See, I love the message of Jesus. I love the cross, the resurrection, and the implication because it directly confronts the problem of suffering. It acknowledges that there's going to be suffering in life. It acknowledges that all of life is fundamentally suffering. Sin creates suffering. It creates pain. It creates hardship. But then Jesus intervenes into the suffering to rescue us from that suffering. Now, that doesn't come in box one, box two, box three. That that comes at the end of all things, right? The trajectory is all the boxes, then death. But there is a rescue beyond death. But until that ultimate rescue, there is going to be this strand of suffering. And if we're Christians— There is a unique truth that says when you set your foot to the path of Christ, there is an added burden of suffering. Life is suffering, but when you follow Christ in this life, you will actually see a greater level of suffering in different ways. In fact, in the book of Acts, I was just reading that this this week. Paul is um, just recently converted. And, and he's gone out preaching and, and, and really bringing the conviction of the gospel to bear on the lives of people. And he's gone into one community and they've stoned him. Right? So this dude went from causing others to suffer under the name of Christ to now suffering for the name of Christ. And so much so that he's actually been stoned in his suffering. But then he gets back up, goes back into the city, he preaches, and in Acts chapter 14 says in verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and they had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. See, Paul goes around and says, hey man, I'm glad you're Christians. I'm glad you're following Jesus. But yes, we will have tribulation in this life as we follow Jesus. And through many tribulations, we will enter the kingdom of God. And so I'm being honest with you this morning to say, life is suffering. I don't want to run from that. I'm being honest with you this morning saying, uh, when you follow Christ, you actually invite more suffering. But as we're going to see this morning, we need to take all of that and say, the suffering is momentary. Right? It's not forever. It's just for a season. And more importantly, the suffering is opportunity. Suffering is opportunity for us. It's going to shape us and grow us and develop us and hone us in ways that we wouldn't apart from the suffering. And so that's Peter's topic, but he's going to uh, kind of immerse that idea in a bigger sea of encouragement. Now, the way this book has started is with encouragement. 
right? We go back to last week, verses 1 and 2, and he says, listen, here's the bottom line. You are chosen by God. You are elect by God. You are loved by God. God foreknew you, and by foreknowing you, it means that God has foreloved you, had this intimacy with you for as long as eternity past is, and because of that, he has invaded your space. He showered you with a grace that is undeniable and unstoppable, and so God loves you in that way. This is the place he starts. In fact, not just God the Father, but God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity is massively involved in what it means for us to be brought into a relationship with God. So no wonder then, when we start in verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word blessed means happy. God is happy. I know some people look at God and they go, how can God be happy? I've read the Old Testament. That dude does not seem happy. No, God is a happy God. Paul says in Romans 9, he is the eternally happy God. And God has joy for many different reasons, all within himself. But one of the things that God takes great joy and great happiness in is the fact that he has redeemed you and me through Jesus, through the Spirit, to himself for the praise of his glorious grace. He is happy because of that. No wonder Peter opens up by saying, happy be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He then says, according to... To his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now, two things about this I love. First of all, I love the fact that it says he has caused us to be born again. Again, this goes back to this idea that God invades our space. He causes this life in us. He causes this transformation. This is not about us saving ourselves. This is not about us tightening the bootstraps and biting down on the leather and getting through life. This is about God doing something in us. This is what I love about the gospel again. It's not about how hard we work for God. It's about that God saved us in his grace and he works hard in us as we yield to him. Right? That's the gospel. And it's not merely just a gospel for this life. It is living hope. I mean, I noticed that. Living hope. See, I, I, I think about this because in, in our world, there is a lot of um, promise toward hope. Right? You, you go back to the president's original campaign of hope. And no matter where you fall on that spectrum, you can understand why that word invokes a lot of uh, emotion in, in the positive. Because at that point, uh, you know, when, when he was running for office, I think there was a sense of hopelessness within our culture, right? We'd been engaged in two wars where economically we were falling apart. People wanted hope. And so it was a perfect tagline. But, but here's the reality of hope in our world. Hope for us, fundamentally, is about... Uh, an, an optimism that is uncertain, right? In other words, when people talk about hope in the daily affairs of life, we're not talking about an absolute conviction. We're talking about a little H hope. We're like, we hope it works out. We hope that Wilson completes that pass on the two-yard line. Right, so we hope, but it's a little H hope. We don't have a guarantee. But see, when the Bible writers write about hope, they're talking capital H. They're not talking about optimistic possibility. They're talking about dynamic certainty. And see, this is the challenge for us as Christians sometimes. Um, heaven seems far. God is invisible. And so I think sometimes we almost fall into the rut where we go, I hope optimistic possibility that this book is true. I hope maybe it's the way. 
though the Bible writers, they always looked at this from the perspective of, no, this is absolute certainty. This is conviction. This is a big T truth with a big H hope. And it's living. It's dynamic. It's alive. That is what's been given to us in the gospel. And so when Peter starts to write about this, he says, I want you to understand what you have. In fact, if you were doing Smash Bible just on this, it would be yellow, man. Promise, promise. It's promise. This is what exists in our world. This is what exists in our life. And he says, we've been born to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, I can't help but think about my man Peter on this one and and think maybe what was in his mind as he penned that. Because I go back to his life. Right? So the resurrection means more than one thing, probably uniquely for Peter, because uh, here's Peter. Jesus is arrested that night. He swears, I'm never going to deny you. I'm never going to run. I'm not going to ditch you. I will go to prison. I will go to death. Jesus gets swiped, and Peter books. And then he denies, and he denies, and he denies. And Jesus is crucified. And if Jesus would have remained dead, Peter would have spent the rest of his life enslaved in shame. But see, three days later, Jesus rises from the dead, and it's an opportunity for Peter to go to Jesus and for Jesus to reassure Peter. And from that, Peter's shame is lifted. From that, his guilt is gone. The resurrection of Jesus brought a living hope into Peter's life in a very direct and pertinent way. And in the same way, what is true of the gospel for all of us is that it lifts our shame. It lifts our burden. It lifts our guilt. That is the power of the gospel. So it is living hope through the resurrection. I think if I go a little bit deeper to this, what I want to communicate about the the reality of Christ and who we are in Christ is that we have such an intimacy with him that that I, I think we don't even always realize it. We don't own the level of intimacy. In fact, I want to point your attention. You can flip there if you're speedy. Um, but to the book of Galatians. Galatians, it's, it's Paul's testimony, basically, in Galatians. And he's talking about how, you know, he used to try to be saved by the law, and that's not really going to work, but now he's been saved by God. There's life now through the gospel in God. And he talks about his relationship to Jesus, and this is true for all of us, in verse 20 of chapter 2 of Galatians. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is a part of your living hope. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Right? There is an intimacy that we have with God, with Christ, that is so profound that somehow we were in Christ. I was in Christ as Christ was crucified. This is part of how this living hope was, was purchased. Jesus didn't just generically die for gem- generic kinds of things. There was this truth that says, just as Paul was in Christ, so I was in Christ. I don't know how that works. I, I don't have a clue but it shows the intimacy that Jesus died for me. It's super personal. And so my life was hidden with Christ as Christ gave himself for me, for Paul, for you. That's true. Furthermore, in Colossians 3, starting at verse 1, it says, Since you have been raised with Christ, 
Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So, so again, notice the, the, the full picture. Uh, you have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So intimate that you were in Christ when he died, and so intimate you were in Christ when he rose. Again, I, I don't know what that means, but it communicates, again, tremendous intimacy. And with that intimacy, power. If you look in Philippians 3, Paul has this great declaration of, uh, I try to win my way to heaven through my works and through my pedigree and through my affiliations and associations religiously, and then I realize that all of that merits me nothing, and then I came to know Christ on the Damascus Road, and now all I want to do is know him. And he has this great line in Philippians 3.10 where he says, I just want to know him and the power of his resurrection. And when Paul says that, he doesn't mean in the future I want to be resurrected. He certainly desires that. But what he's talking about is I want to know today the power that rose him. See, to every Christian is given resurrection power. This is why you have a living hope. This is why you are in Christ. This is why Christ is in you. I know this all sounds very abstract. But it's meant to say you have more than you realize. You are fully loaded in him, through him, by him, for him. And so again, because of the resurrection, you are unstoppable. So when we go through a series called Endure, it means you have what you need to endure. You are not overwhelmed or swamped. You are not a sinking boat. You're not. You're more than a conqueror. And so Peter is seeking to inspire and to encourage them. Realize who you are. Realize what you have. You have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then he goes on to verse 4, right? To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now, what I love about this idea of having this inheritance, a um, couple of things. First of all, it means your family now. If you have inheritance, your family, that's part of what's being captured here. The other thing about this that I love is think about what does it take for you to receive your inheritance? Somebody's got to die, right? Mom has to die. Dad has to die. Somebody has to die to leave you an inheritance. Well, here's what's really interesting. Uh, Jesus died to give you inheritance. But then he rose so that you could share in it with him. It's the only inheritance that you're allowed to enjoy with the person who died to give it to you. Every other inheritance you will enjoy in life or use in life, you do apart from the person that gave it to you. This is why it's such a phenomenal thing. This is why the gospel matters. This is why it's living hope. More than that, it says that it is undefiled, unfading, and imperishable. Right? This is very different than any other kind of inheritance. In other words, uh, let's say you have parents, and, and at some point they are going to pass, and they're going to leave you an inheritance. But your inheritance is totally at the mercy of their spending or what their stocks do or do not do, what happens with their retirement portfolio. It rises, it falls, it can be all gone, it can accrue, whatever else. That's what happens with a worldly inheritance. With a heavenly inheritance, it's very different. It never diminishes, it only increases, and it's guarded and kept by God. 
but it's kept in heaven. And this is a reminder that we are exiles in this world. This planet isn't our home. This system isn't our home. That 401k isn't your ultimate goal in life. 65 and relaxation isn't your ultimate goal in life. Again, it goes back to suffering. By the time you're into the box with the wheels going down the road with the one little box behind and you're traveling the country, you have aches and pains and you have a different kind of suffering. Right? So, so it's not your ultimate goal. It's not your ultimate home. It's not your ultimate rest. And so Peter is motivating us. Think in terms of the long game, right? You have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. And then it says in verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through the faith. And so as much as your inheritance is kept for you, you ready? You are kept for your inheritance. And that's what Peter is saying right there. Right? So God is invested in guarding you as God is, in, is, is invested in guarding the inheritance that you will have one day as you live as an exile in this world, waiting to one day be at home. All of this is motivation for Peter. He says it's guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So at the end of all things, and because of this, he says in verse 6, in this you rejoice. That you know one day, all the labor, all the pain, all the challenge, all the hardship, all the uh, dashed dreams and unfulfilled hopes, all of that will be blown away. And one day you will have everything that was promised. You will see clearly. You will understand fully. You will be filled thoroughly. He says, man, in that you rejoice. I think the problem for American Christians is sometimes we don't rejoice in eternity. We don't rejoice in the future because we're busy trying to make it comfortable here. We're busy trying to protract out this life as though we think this life is going to be more fulfilling than the life to come. I've shared this before where when, when I was a uh, young man, I'm getting to be not so much a young man. When I was a young man, there was always, uh, hey, Jesus, don't come until I get married. And then once married, well, don't come until I have kids. And then my kids go, well, don't come until my kids are married. Now don't come until my kids have kids. I want to be a grandpa. Right? And it's easy to want to protract it out. And I'm not saying that those desires are bad desires, but what I'm saying is sometimes because we have it really good, really comfortable, we live in homes that hold between 68 and 72 degrees all year long. Well, except for August without AC up here. But, you know, for the most part, we have a comfortable life. We have a refrigerator full of food. We have cars to get us where we want to go. We have multiple clothes. We, we have a very comfortable life. And sometimes we don't rejoice in the future. If we suffered more, perhaps we would. But they rejoiced. They looked for the final culmination. And all of this, again, like I said, is motivation. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. This is where I was saying earlier, life is about hardship or suffering. Life is challenge. He says here it's trials. The word trials is where we get the word tribulation from. Uh, and, and, and this actually flows from a Roman uh, agricultural device. And, and so the Romans built basically a cart with these two big wheels on it that were loaded with bits of metal and other just pieces of like shrapnel kind of embedded into the concrete wheels. And they would drive this over grain to separate the wheat and the chaff. This was the idea of 
tribulation. And he says, in life, you're going to have that. In life, you're going to be under the bus, and you're going to feel it. In life, you're going to feel the wheels go over you, and things dig in, and it's separating you in different ways. You're going to experience that. And he says, it's various. It's various. Some of the various trials are just the basic trials of life, right? If you're married, you will experience trials. Right? I mean, this is what Keith was sharing. He wasn't saying anything bad. He wasn't saying anything we don't all experience. You can have the best marriage, and you're still going to have trials. You're going to have the best marriage, and you can still have arguments and debates, and there's days and weeks where you're out of rhythm and out of sync, and then, man, some of us have had very hard marriages. Some of us are in a second marriage because the first marriage was so filled with various trial. Right? Marriage has trial. If you have kids, no question, you will experience trial. Right? And, and, and when they're toddlers, you go, oh, man, I'm so fatigued. I'm so tired. I just want to sleep. Somebody let me sleep. Right? Like that. And then when they're teenagers, you go, I'm just so tired. I just want to sleep. Just let me sleep. Right? Um, it's just different trial. And then I was talking to a mother recently with adult kids who is massively burdened by the decisions of her adult kids. So it doesn't go away even when they're adults. So various trials. If you're a child, you will experience trial and tribulation at the hands of your parents. Parents don't know everything always, and sometimes it's very hard. So again, life is going to have tribulation and trial. At work, with your health, many of you have experienced health trial, right? So it's going to be there. Not just that, there's trials that we inflict on ourselves through our own decisions, poor decisions, giving into things we shouldn't give into, making decisions because I want it now and I don't want to wait for it for later, whatever it is. And so you experience those self-inflicted trials. And then, as I said earlier, as soon as you decide to set your foot to the path of Christ, you will experience trials for just being a Christian, for just following Jesus. Paul says, hey, man, here's the guarantee. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, for all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, they will suffer persecution. They will. In fact, the more you try to be godly, the more you're going to experience it. Uh, The more you try to do what the Bible tells you to do, the more you're going to find it hard to do that very thing. And there's going to be some that oppose you. And if you look around in our world right now, we certainly see in our environment something that is not as familiar to us as American Christians, which is a growing opposition. I mean, we see it. It, it. We don't have to look far. I was reading an article this week about a Navy chaplain, 19 years in the Navy, uh, and and. Going into year 20, he's getting busted because he shares what he believes the Bible teaches in counseling circumstances, and they're saying, uh, we can't have that. Can't have that. And so he's, he's in trouble. He's, he's been removed from his position just for sharing what the Bible communicates when he's counseling. Right? Or reading an article this week at the George Washington University about a Christian group that's losing its status as a Christian group because its belief in the Bible. We know about bakers. We know about florists. We know about CEOs of companies. We know that in Canada, yes, just across the border, in the alleged kindest country on the planet next to Sweden, um, pastors are in prison there. Do you realize that? Pastors are in prison for preaching the Bible in Canada. I don't think we realize that. Uh, We look across the pond, and we look at Syria, and we look at Iraq, and we look at Egypt, and we see what Syria is doing to Christians. We we forget what's happening to Christians just north of our border. We forget what's happening to Christians in Richland, Washington. We forget what's happening to Christians just over the border into, uh, into Oregon. 
We, we forget these kinds of things, too. And there is an increasing pressure. Uh, you just simply turn on anything in the media, and every time there's a Christian on a television show or movie, it's a Christian nothing like you. There's always this caricature. In fact, um, Scott was telling me, apparently Pastor Scott watches The Good Wife, all right? So um, don't tell him I told you, but... Um, he was telling me about an episode of The Good Wife. I thought it was so adorable he watches that. All right, so, um, but, but he said there was this, this episode where the, the mother and the father had, had to come together to talk about the teenage daughter. And it was like, are you going to deal with it? Do you want me to deal with it? Oh, I don't know. I'll deal with it. I know it's kind of a big deal and everything else. And you're like, what, is she pregnant? Uh, is she, you know, like doing drugs? What is it? They were coming together to collaborate on how to deal with the fact that she was going to a Bible study. All right, this is just a television show that has it. So increasingly... For those who say, I believe this book, I believe that Jesus is the one way to God, I believe that God has set up a standard for us, and that has carried on for thousands of years to God's people, if you believe that, you are out of sync. And you may suffer various trials. You may be excluded, you may be a little bit more outcast, you may be talked about behind your back, uh, and you probably even feel the pressure if you're nervous to talk with friends about the fact that you are an evangelical Christian. If you're just nervous to share that fact, it's probably evidence that you sense it at some level. Well, this is no different than with Peter's own audience and in his own world. I mean, they were in the same circumstance. They were saying, we believe in Jesus, and we believe God's word given to us. And from that, they were feeling the pinch. They were suffering various trials. Some stimulated by their Christian faith, some stimulated just by the problems of life, some even brought on by themselves. However you slice it, various trials are hard. They're real, but they're also useful. They're useful. He says, in this you rejoice, though for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, verse 7, so that, there's purpose, your trial has purpose, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to the result in praise and glory and honor. I want to stop right there. I want to stop right there because I want us to really let that soak in. And I want us to begin to own as a people, as a church, as individuals, that your trials, life trials, personally inflicted trials, outside opposed to your faith trials, every one of those trials has value. Every trial has opportunity. Every trial is this friend in your life to shape your person, to shape your character, and to grow your faith. Now, part of that means we have to believe that faith is more precious than gold. We have to believe that our faith is more precious than our 401k, our retirement program, whatever's in savings, the value of our house. It's more valuable and more useful than our education or our money-making opportunity. We have to believe it is truly of greater worth, faith is. And if you do, then you realize that a trial is an opportunity to gain. In fact, I read a quote this week by Warren Wearsby. I really liked it. He says, A faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. A faith that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. Here's what happens when we have trials in our life, various trials, whatever kinds, they heat us up. All right? Just, just like, like gold and, and dealing with the impurities to separate it out, uh, trials heat us up. 
and if received, um, it takes those impurities and you can skim those off and it burns off the remaining impurities. That's what the trial is designed to do. If you receive it, if you take it and you let it do its work, it produces in you a precious faith. Now, on the flip, if trials come your way and you get embittered, angry, bitter, why are you doing this to me, God, at you too, in return, everything else. If you do that, it doesn't remove impurities. It actually contaminates the spirit of faith and just makes you faithless. Now, for the person that takes the trials and they say, God is doing something and he's burning out the old stuff in me and he's bringing forth the pure newness of life I have in him. For those who receive that, you know what? Those people are super inspiring to be around. When you're around a person that has suffered much and they have joy, when they have a sense of contentment, when they go, oh man, all things work for good and I know God's going to do a great thing and he's going to produce really amazing fruit in my life from this, that person, I want to be around that person. That person moves me. Right? But for the person that says, all of this is happening in my life and it's bad and it's miserable and life just sucks and I that person, I still want to be there. I want to care for them. But again, they, 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 don't, they don't inspire as much. We want to help them, but they're not inspirational. They're, they're more like you're trying to inspire them, trying to get them filled up. But for the person that says, I'm going to take it. It's not easy. I don't mean as they take it that it's always easy. I don't mean that as they're battling cancer or some debilitating, uh, crippling, just chronic pain or some problem in life with their child or whatever it might be. I'm not saying that they're always like, hey, I'm good. I don't mean that. But where they have hope, that inspires. That shows faith. And So Peter looks at this and says, man, I know it's hard, but if you suffer well, man, it tests you and it proves you. It has fruitfulness. I remember this in a very small way growing up as a kid where I learned that suffering precedes kind of the the fruitfulness of glory in a a totally different way. As a kid, we used to go over to my grandparents' house, and the big fun thing at Grandpa and Grandma's house was uh, homemade ice cream, right? It's the best, right? So we'd all go over, and then Grandpa would get out the bucket and the motor and the ice, and he would bring out of the fridge the kind of the cocktail of ice cream awesomeness, right? And um, the salt, and then what he would do is we'd all gather around, and he'd grab that electric motor and set it to the side, and he'd give you the crank, right? And you're like, we got a motor. And he's like, ah, but the crank means it'll taste better in the end, Right? You work at it, you suffer with it, you pour in, you exert, and it's better. It's better. And it's the same thing. Yes, suffering is hard. Trial, nobody wants a trial. But God produces through trial. I think he produces a number of things. The first thing that God produces in trial is a reliance on grace. Um, There's this scene in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul is writing, and he's saying, you know what? God has shown me a lot of incredible things. He's revealed truths to me that he hasn't revealed to most people. And so he says in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, So, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So Paul is like, you know what? God showed me a lot. I could become real full of myself. So God brought suffering. 
God brought the suffering. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. When you suffer and you feel weak and you feel broken down, you go, I can't go any further. This is where God says, or this is where he says, I know, but my grace is sufficient. Maybe that's where he's trying to get us, to the place where we are broken in our hardships so that we are reliant on grace. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, this is what trials produce. They produce in us a place where our spine suffers this scoliosis, and the only way to straighten it is to press it against the cross. I can't do it. The trial's too big. And we press in. And then God says, this is where my grace really dances. When you're weak, when you accept the trial. In Luke 6, Jesus says, you know what? When you suffer persecution, when you suffer trial, rejoice. Leap for joy. Be glad there is future reward for you. Inheritance as you suffer I think about Acts chapter 5, where Peter and the other apostles, they're told to stop preaching. Don't share the gospel anymore. And then after they're told to stop preaching, they beat them all. And then they send them out. And what happens as soon as they're beaten for preaching the gospel, they get outside, they're chest bumping and fist bumping and high five, and they're like, man, we are worthy to be persecuted. They're excited about that. Why? Because they know there's reward. This is what Peter knows. He's experienced it. He's looking down the final corridor before he fully receives that inheritance. And so he says, listen, endure. Take the hardship because it results in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And what he says in that is he's saying, uh, Christ says, well done. Right? This is where Christ celebrates you. Where he says, you know what? You weren't ashamed of me. You weren't embarrassed by me. You didn't worry about what the world said. You didn't lose sight of the big game. You didn't falter on vision. You knew the outcome. You believed it with capital H, hope and faith. And you received the hardships knowing that it would shape that faith more and propel you further. And so he celebrates you and me as we endure. Now this is really interesting because, again, sometimes our struggle is that we I guess the best way to put it is uh, Jesus isn't that real to us. Right? I mean, this is where I think the real depth of the struggle is, is that we go, we believe, but like the father with the demon-possessed child, I believe, help my unbelief. That, that's sort of us. But, but Peter's audience really got it. He says in verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him. I mean, Jesus was, was real. He was real for them. I think sometimes that's a struggle because we go, well, I don't, I don't see him. He's invisible. I, I don't have this, this verbal dialogue where it's back and forth, and we don't just hang out and have a beer after work and chat about our day. Right? I, I get the challenges. Uh, we sometimes think, man, if I could just see him, then I would believe more. But actually, in John's gospel, he says, you know what, man, if you see and you believe, blessed are you. But if you don't see and believe, even more blessed. 
And that's this group here. Jesus is real to them. And it's funny, this is a completely different parallel. It probably even borderlines on a sacrilegious parallel, so bear with me. Bible's over here, I'm over here, by Trent's iPad, which probably is a different problem. All right, so, um, so, uh, but, but I was thinking about my daughter. My daughter has uh, a real dear friend in her life, my oldest, Honor, has a real dear friend um, that she's never met uh, in this world, will never meet, because his name is Harry Potter, right? And Bible over there, Matt's over here. All right, so, um, but my, my daughter loves that whole series, and she's read it multiple times, and if I said, Honor, in your life, who are among some of your dearest friends? She'd say, well, Harry is one of my friends. Right? I've, I've read about him, but I've, I've read so much about him, he, he, is, he is real for me. Right? Now again, this is an incomplete picture because Jesus is in fact real. He's not a fictional character in a fictional book. He's a real living Lord and Savior that this book reveals. But it's the same idea. So uh, for my daughter, she, she gets what it's like to kind of feel like you have a relationship even with somebody that you don't have a kind of traditional relationship with. Dumbledore is a great mentor to my daughter. She's never met Dumbledore, right? Um, it, it's that kind of concept, except, except again, Jesus is real. He's dynamic. He's living. He's in our lives. We talk with him. We seek him, and he works and speaks in us in very unique ways, right? And so Peter says, you know what? You know him. And the more you know him, the more it motivates you to continue on in him. He says, that's what's carrying you through to the obtaining of the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It keeps you moving through life into that final day where you pass and you stand before Jesus and that ultimate final day when there's the resurrection and all the fullness of the inheritance and the promises is 100% fulfilled. He goes on to say, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ was in them, indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Um, I don't need to make a lot of comment about that, except to the degree that what Peter is saying is, you know what, Um, you and I are part of a, a very long line of truth revealed, the process of God uh, moving to redeem his people, right? And, and in the Old Testament, they weren't sure when that was going to happen or how it was going to happen, but they made this deep investment. All the more we're on the other side of the cross, all the more we should make that deep investment, all the more we should want to understand it, we should want to care. And when we really understand it, we really care, and we really inquire deeply, we see what they saw, which is the process of suffering unto glory, Right? So part of this whole thing is going, man, it's a deep tradition. It's always been a tradition being handed down one generation to the next that Christ would come and Christ would redeem. And in that, then we would live in the spirit and scope of who Christ is. And what that pattern always is, is suffering that leads to glory. And so in the same way it's always been, the way it's going to continue to be. And so Peter, again, is just seeking to encourage them to say this is how it, how it works. So embrace that there is suffering and embrace that there is future glory because Christ came and Christ suffered and from that there is glory. And in this then, we want to continue to be an example. It says in verse 12, It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now verses 10 through 12 probably meant a little bit more 
for them and their circumstance, and maybe it fully does for us. But again, the big idea is that this has always been the plan of God. And the big idea is that, again, that pattern of suffering into glory is always going to be the thing. And again, it's a tradition handed down. And so my encouragement to us, kind of from that whole big idea, is that we would be the types of people that continue to pass down the legacy. Just as it came through the Old Testament, just as it came through the apostles, just as it came through the early church, just as it's always been, that will continue to be that generational passing down of, yes, it's suffering than glory. Have faith, next generation. This isn't about me. It's for who's next. That's what the Old Testament guys were saying there. It's not for us. It's for who's next. Every single generation of Christians should say, this isn't about me. It's for who's next. I will endure in suffering for who is next. I will be a model for who is next. I will not cave because of who is coming next. I will not accommodate to make it easier for my life because I'm worried about who's coming next, that they will have a model in which to emulate. I think more than ever in American evangelicalism, we are at a point where we have to start deciding what are we passing down? What are we leaving to the millennials? What are we leaving to those that the millennials have as their kids? What are we going to show them? What are we going to stand for? What are we going to give up? What are we going to say this matters to? And we're going to say, you know what? I matter more than that truth matters. I mean, we have to make those decisions. And I believe it's central and critical and necessary for us to make gracious decisions, wise decisions, kind decisions, humble decisions, but biblical decisions. Biblical decisions in which, as we do so, um, there may be some hardship. There may be some ridicule. You might feel a little bit outside of the inner circle. But you go, wait, this is, this is a legacy. This is something I passed down. And even though it may be hard now, it's glory later. Even though it may be challenged now, it's rewarded later. Even though I might suffer a bit here, there's eventually there, and there is forever. Here is temporal. There is eternal. And so Peter encourages us, be a part of the grand story. Be motivated by confident hope. And keep in mind that you have an inheritance that will never, ever perish. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, I thank you again for your grace. And I thank you for this passage that is telling us to have a long game in mind. That we have, again, hope. We have inheritance. We have the guarantee of being celebrated by you, yourself, the God of the universe. We are told that our faith will grow and expand if we receive the challenges of life with grace. That we become better people. We become godlier people as we suffer in your strength. And that from that we can pass on something. As handed down through the Old Testament, into the New Testament, into the 21st century, into this place at this time, in this community, in this country, for this climate... And I pray that we will contend well, that we will rely well on you. We love you, we thank you, and we praise you in your name.